You're listening to Surrounded by History, a podcast of the Blue Earth County Historical Society. Produced by Radio Mankato with your host, Historical Society Executive Director Jessica Potter. And now, Surrounded by History. Hello and welcome to Surrounded by History. I'm your host, Jessica Potter, with the Blue Earth County Historical Society. Joining me today is Radio Mankato's Jeff Lang. Each week, this program explores the history all around us, the history in plain sight. Today, we will explore the history of Prohibition, Moonshine, and Gangsters. <laughs> so let's jump I in. I know, I know, I, I wrote this one for you. Let's jump in and be surrounded by history. All right. Okay, so let's start today by talking about life prior to the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibited the sale, distribution, and consumption of alcoholic beverages. So, um, this, I think, is a very telling aspect. In the late 1800s, the average male was drinking 7 to 12 gallons of hard alcohol per year. Wow. Public intoxication and alcohol-related crimes rose extremely during this period. In the comparison, today, um, in the top 10% of American drinkers, 24 million adults over the age of 18 consume, on average, <laughs> 74 alcoholic drinks per week. This is the top 10 heavy ones. Yep. So that works out to be a little bit more than one gallon per year. Woo! Compared okay. to 7 to 12 gallons per year. And on the alcoholic drinks, that means beer too. Mm-hmm. So it's not just hard. Off. So what you're saying is when people say, oh, you got, we all drink more, we're drinking less. In comparison <laughs> to the 1800s when water was contaminated with viruses. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm hearing we're drinking less. Good for us. <laughs> So, as you can imagine, with all of that alcohol being consumed just as everyday life, there were two different groups that really were against this. The Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Ameri- the Anti-Saloon League, they were gaining support during this time period. They argued that alcohol was the underlying source of many of the wrongs of the era. And, um, for example, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was... Uh, was uh, their platform was that husbands and fathers were abandoning or abusing their families mm-hmm, due to alcoholism mm-hmm. and the anti saloon league was very much focused on an anti immigrant sentiments due to the large influx of immigrants whose cultures included drinking and there was a big flux of immigration at this point in time like the irish and the germans and the italians so they were on a on a little platform saying that we needed to Again, stop immigration, or we had to limit uh, alcohol because of these particular mm-hmm. immigrants that were coming. This is also the point in time where we're going to move into World War One, where we become in war with many of these um, immigrant groups as well. And there's like a wartime prohibition or something like that during that time, there too. There is a wartime prohibition. In November 18th, 1918, Congress passed it. This was right toward the end of World War One, and that banned the sale of beer and alcohol beverage beverages in an effort to reserve the grain for food production. So it was more of like rationing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this eventually shut down our breweries and distilleries. Um, 36 of the 48 st- states had achieved complete prohibition as of 1918. 
And then the National Prohibition Act, also known as the Volstead Act, was passed in 1919 to, again, prohibit intoxicating beverages, regulate the sale, manufacture, and transportation of intoxicating liquor. It was enforced through the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and was in place from 1920 to 1933. The Volstead Act, what does it have to do with Minnesota? Yeah. Do you know? No. It was a Republican representative from Minnesota that um, was the author of the Volstead Act. It's not okay. Not okay. And the Volstead Act was the only constitutional amendment that took away a right instead of guaranteeing one. Interesting. I guess that you're right. It does. Yeah. Huh. And then on that note, I do say I, 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 you get angry at prohibition, but if it didn't happen, you wouldn't have some of these great stories yes. that we've learned about from TV and everything else. And then on top of that, we wouldn't have 1919 Rupp beer. So, exactly. And I do love me one of those. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> so also at this time, okay, we just got done with World War One. We now have prohibition. The, uh, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution in 1920 gives women the right to vote. I mean, all of this stuff is happening right one on top of the other. So we move into the 1920s with prohibition. We move into the roaring 20s where hemlines are raised, bob haircuts for women, jazz music, and a strong post-war economy that ironically will be involved in the prohibition era. So one of the challenges with the with the history of the Prohibition era is that some of the best stories were never recorded, or at the very least cannot be proven. The very nature of moonshiners and bootleggers and gangsters was to avoid getting caught and leaving their stories untold. So there is one story um, that I would, one of two stories I'd like to share with you, the Shady Lady from South Bend Township. <laughs> the Shady Lady. All right. All right. So this is a fun uh, story when you look back at history and you think about this time period, how much of it is true is yet to be determined. Um, so we're going to take the life of Isabel Bellborn, she goes by Bell at points, um, of South Bend Township here in our area. We know from newspaper accounts that she was connected with the gangster Charles Big Fitz Fitzgerald and was a witness in a famous kidnapp- kidnapping trial out of St. Paul. Because there's newspaper accounts of it. But what about the rumors she knew John Dillinger? Or the tale of a tunnel under her house used to store moonshine? So let's learn a little bit more about her. All right. Isabel Matilda Anderson, born is her married name, um, was born in 1888 in South Bed Township to Christian and Caroline Anderson. Her parents and three of her siblings emigrated from Denmark to the United States in 1885 and built a log cabin on the corner of Clarion and Third Street in South Bend. By the ripe old age of 34 and only three years after leaving her home country of Denmark, Caroline, the mother, was um, left as a widow. Um, Her husband had passed away. She was unable to speak English and she was now raising three children. She supported herself and her children by working as a domestic in hotels and homes in the area. She eventually built a new... What's a domestic A domestic would be a a maid. Oh, okay. Okay. Say maid. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I'm using fancy language. Um, She eventually built a new home on the original property, and she lived there until 1931. Um, Belle, Isabel, and her sister May became owners of that property. And as time passed, 
Isabel acquired more property and eventually owned a whole block of land in South Bend. So, not much is more is known about Isabel's uh, childhood years. We do know that in the early 1900s, she married William Bourne. That's her husband. He was a U.S. Army major during World War One, and she lived with him at a variety of military bases across the country. They divorced, and they had no children. So, when Bell's mother passed away in 1934. Bell moved into that house and remained in South Bend for the rest of her life. Hmm. It was in the 1930s when rumors began to circulate about her connection to organized crime, and she became <laughs> the notorious, albeit mysterious, Bell Bourne. Two Bellborn. Wi- Bell Why is there not a movie about that? I know, I know. Okay, but I do have to, a little side note, um, Mankato Brewery got a hold of this story, and they had the shady lady. Yes. That's this. Oh, okay, that's they, cool. They had a very limited time uh, beer last fall that was known as the shady lady, and it was all and based on this. Now we know why. Yes. That is, yes. okay. All right. So two widely reported kidnappings occurred in Minnesota in the early 1930s. The first was William Hanks of Ham's Brewery fame. Oh. Okay, speaking of breweries. Yep. In 1933, and the second was the abduction of Edward Bremer, who was a banker, in 1934. The Bremer Bank? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. These so two, really big, high-profile names. Then. Exactly. These two kidnappings led to the arrest of Alvin Karpis, the nation's public enemy number one, who was a member of Ma Barker's gang, and also Charles Fitzgerald, an ex-convict and acquaintance of Miss Bellborne. Bell was a witness in both trials. In the end, Belle Bourne was never convicted of anything. She was released from custody and returned to South Bend, where she lived until her death in 1968. But her notoriety grew, and the stories about her connection to organized crime flourished in the area. The most popular of these stories was the one about the bulletproof glass window she had installed in her house on Clarion Street. <laughs> Hers was considered a safe house where gangsters could lay low when the, the heat was on under such time as it was safe to venture out again and resume their criminal activities. Local residents report that Bell had both red and green lights installed in her front windows, which was a signal to let watching gangsters know if the coast was clear to enter. Bell had a contact person in northern Wisconsin who could provide safe travel information to those gangsters on the run from the law. Rumor had it that the then sheriff, Blue Earth County Sheriff Frank Kortz, had an agreement with the South Bend bootleggers. If they behaved themselves, so would he, unless the FBI intervened. And then he and his deputies would have no choice but to step in and do whatever was necessary. Sounds like an old-style old handshake agreement. <laughs> Bell coexisted with the other bootleggers in the area. The place was frequently staked out by the authorities in hopes that they would catch Bell and the others in incriminating circumstances. Moonshiners would frequently make deliveries to her house. The liquor was taken to her cellar and from there moved back through a tunnel to a cave in the hillside beside her, behind her house. Bell stored the moonshine in the cave until she could move it onto the black market. <laughs> Another of the favorite area stories was the gangster sightings at Bell's house. Bootleggers reported that one time when they stopped at the house with a load of shine, they found a bunch of men sitting around her kitchen table laughing and talking and having a drink. The bootleggers were cordially invited to join the party. The leader turned out to be 
the infamous John Dillinger, accompanied by several men from his mob. I love it. <laughs> I do. And wasn't there, now this could be completely me making things up in my head, but somebody said that John Dillinger was like hung out in the wine rat or the wine, like that, at that, was that, I don't know if that's true or whatever, you know? Yeah. Like that's like one of his hideouts or his hangouts were too. Yeah, he, 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 he was said to be in Mankato. Yeah, exactly. There, and, there's reports that he was and in And he Mankato. always talked about hanging out amongst the people because the people are like, yeah, get his booze. It's cool. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. All right. So while we'll never fully know the story of the people like Belborn um, and all of the wonders, um, newspapers from the 1920s and 1930s still give us memorable stories unique to the time of Prohibition. And so here's a story ripped from the headlines. Oh, boy. Here we go. All right. Title of the story. Headline, carp on drunk gave clue to the stills. <laughs> Authorities oh, can thank a carp and an observant farmer for alerting them to two large stills south of Mankato near Woods Ford on the Blue Earth River. In the spring of 1921, a local sportsman killed a large carp that had attacked him. <laughs> Thinking the fish is Man, odd. fish were more vicious back then. <laughs> exactly. Thinking the fish's odd behavior needed a closer look, the carp was presented to Hiram S. Goff, judge of the Mankato Municipal Court. Upon examination, it was decided the fish was inebriated. It had bloodshot eyes and a stomach full of what appeared to be mash used to, for distilling alcohol. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hoping the fish would lead them to an illegal still, Judge Goff, a Secret Service man out of St. Paul, along with some Mankato officials made a search of the hills around Woods Ford. They searched the hills for miles, but couldn't find the suspected moonshine operation. A few months later, a farmer from the same area discovered he was missing around 100 bushels of corn. Noticing a few kernels leading from his corn crib toward the river, he followed the trail and soon came upon a moonshine still. There were oil stoves, copper boilers, crocks and strainers, empty sugar sacks, and corn mash and kegs in barrels, not to mention a half-empty sack of the stolen corn. Word of the still was sent to the authorities. Because of the operation's location and closeness to the Blue Earth River, they realized it was probably the same setup the carp had alerted them two months before. A large group set off to deal with the still. County Sheriff Anton Austin was joined by the police chief, deputy sheriff, county attorney, district court judge, court reporter, free press reporter, and Judge Goff. Dang. (laughs) The crowd. (laughs) The still was located and seized. Then there was the question of what to do with what remained of the mash and utensils. It was decided the mash should be dumped on the ground and the vessels destroyed. The free press reporter re- shared the proceedings. The sheriff handed the rock to Judge Goff, the Hercules of the party, <laughs> and told him to put his own court order into execution. Judge Goff brought the stone down on each barrel with a mighty bang. In the elaborate words of the 1920s reporting, the events were summed up in the August 1st, 1921 article in the free press. Had the carp up at Woods Ford on the Blue Earth River not acted as foolishly as their human superiors do when they get too much booze abroad, 
Perhaps the 150 gallons of mash captured at the Ford would today be brewing and the mist rising from the same be rapidly turning into Mountain Dew <laughs> in one of the most secluded spots in Blue Earth County instead of moistening the parched earth. Wow. Somebody really thought they were a good writer, first of all. It's good. It's hilarious. But all I could think about the entire time you're telling your story is... And I would have got away from it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling carp. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Scooby-Doo episode. It's the carp oh that, that turns them in. Isn't that crazy? Oh, it's so crazy. Oh, my gosh. So, again, prohibition. Uh, obviously, the um, the whole idea of moonshine and bootlegging and all of this was because of of the, the prohibition of selling alcohol right. and making alcohol. So people started doing it on, his, on their own. And... Then, like the place, like the breweries who tried to do it legally originally had to change their whole ways. They did. So, like Shells made root beer, like I said, 1919, mm-hmm. and the other places had to do the kind of the same thing. They also made different. They, I think they kind of came up with other pops. I'm assuming another yes. just kind of played around with that stuff, right? Yeah. Besides the breweries, the bars and saloons ended up becoming soda fountains. That's beca- right. Because that was the way that they could still stay in business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Another industry that really kind of changed, and you really kind of wonder about it was the American grape industry. They started selling kits of juice concentrate, but they put warnings on it that if you left it sit too long, it might ferment and turn into wine. So how many people do you think were making their own homemade wine at this right, time? Right, right. <coughs> Can't take a bath for the next week. Oh my Why gosh. Why not, Mom? So <laughs> we need to make more wine. Exactly. And the same thing with peaches. So they would, they would um, if you found a brewery or a different business that was stockpiling on peaches, well, they were turning that into fermenting to make brandy. Okay. So the um, there's one interesting thing about uh, this time period. Stock car racing has its origins back to prohibition. It's because of bootlegging. That's right. And that's how like NASCAR kind of started because they're like the original originators are like, oh, I'll bet you my car is faster than yours and this and this. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were always souping up their cars to try to bootleg the booze. But then they said, well, let's just actually race each other. Mm-hmm. And they would kind of race each other. They'd race each other to the, through the mountains, in the primarily in the Appalachian region of the United States, which is why I think NASCAR is as big as it is mm-hmm. down, and down in that area. And so they would. They would race each other on the twisty, turny mountain roads because obviously you wanted to you know, be in a... In a, in a secluded area exactly. that you weren't going to get busted on. Exactly. So when this is all going on, too, so people are making their own booze at home. And so they're probably not that good at it because not everybody, I mean, even now, everybody thinks they're craft brewers, but really, <laughs> not everybody's a craft brewer. So I'm guessing, is this like the same time that like drink, mix it, like mixers would make a comeback? You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Because of the, the moonshine was just such a strong, um, uh, harsh flavor that this is the time where they start making cocktails. And so they start mixing different things in with the the moonshine so that you can actually consume gotcha. it. Yeah. So you can actually that's drink when you it. Started, well, I guess you wouldn't technically have whiskey and Coke then probably, but that's kind of what you start making certain cocktails to hide the flavor of stuff. Yeah, because it was so strong right. in a not good way. So we need to come up, I mean, there's a list out there someplace, probably, you probably have it someplace in, our, in your reading, of all the names of homemade alcohol. There's Hooch, there's Hair of the Dog, uh, White Lightning was mentioned in that one story. That mm-hmm. is awesome. That White Lightning was my like favorite. That and Mountain Dew. Mountain yes. Dew is his name of the story, but Mountain yes. Dew and White Lightning were like exactly my favorite. Giggle juice. Giggle juice. I love that one. Why? Or how about tarantula juice? No. Or <laughs> no. monkey rum. These are real monkey rum. Okay, that's mm-hmm. funny. 
Yeah. And that was stuff that people would use all the time, and they just wouldn't know it. And that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. There's, I, the one I got that makes me laugh is rot gut, which I kind of think about all the time when we say, oh, I've got gut rot. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I wonder Probably if that's where, from, where it came from. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. It's okay. Anyway, it all ties back to prohibition. It does, which is Isn't fun. that awesome? It is. It is. The effect of prohibition had a big effect on the United States. Um, revenue was immediately lost. You think about all those businesses that were put out of business. Um, at the national level, level, prohibition cost the federal government $11 billion in lost tax revenue, while costing over $300 million to enforce the prohibition laws. Are you Volstead? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Courts were overwhelmed in prohibition cases. That's where plea bargaining comes in. This ah. is during this time because the courts were just overwhelmed. Um, of course, 1929, the stock market crashes and um, everything is just completely out of whack. So the need for tax dollars to... Um, that were being shifted from prohibition, they really started really thinking again about what are we doing. Um, once we go down into the Great Depression, you have more people out of work um, and you have more people that are in need of these um, different taxes. So eventually, on December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment of the Constitution was ratified and announced um, by Franklin Delano Roosevelt that it repealed the 18th Amendment um, of the Constitution, ending the increasingly unpopular nationwide prohibition of alcohol. Which honestly makes it incredible to believe that that went for 24 years. I know, and it goes through the Roaring Twenties. Right, which is hilarious as well, because the Roaring Twenties are known for being nothing but drunk people. I know, I know. So they're just mind-boggling when you put it all together. So the Prohibition era has captured the intention of many, uh, including us, Mm -hmm. with tales of bootleggers, gangsters, speakeasy. Just imagine how many stories have gone untold. We hope you enjoyed today's program as we explored prohibition, gangsters, a shady lady, a drunk carp. All of the information we shared today comes from the archives of the Blue Earth County Historical Society. Lots of more stories you can look up if you are interested. Until next time, we hope you see the history that surrounds you. You've been listening to Surrounded by History, a podcast from the Blue Earth County Historical Society, produced by Radio Mankato. For more information on this and other topics, visit BlueEarthCountyHistory.com or stop by the Blue Earth County History Center at 424 Warren Street in Mankato. Thanks for listening to Surrounded by History. History.